All right. Um, I know everybody's getting their getting to their seats, getting coffee and all that. Um, I do have a very exciting Sunday school for you this morning. Um, well, you'll be the judge of that. Uh, so we can go ahead and get started here. The, the one thing that I wanted to... The first thing I'll ask, because there are a few of these around, uh, how many of you are interested in Presbyterian history? Like spent time studying Presbyterian history? All right, how many of you... Uh, are knowledgeable about this particular topic, old school, new school controversy? How many of you Googled it beforehand and read the Wikipedia to see if you could, like, catch me up on things? You know, make me stumble, ask questions that I don't know anything about? Um, all right. So you might think that that's a little weird to jump into this particular controversy, to jump into Presbyterian history. Um, Maybe it is. Uh, maybe it's a little bit difficult. I think do, jumping into any kind of topic like that for just a couple minutes can be uh, difficult. Uh, but nonetheless, I think there's things that we can glean as history always has things for us to glean as we behold God working through his providence, through his church in various ways. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I'm going to try to be somewhat middle of... I'm going to try not to expose my opinions, um, but, I mean, they'll, they'll come out. Um, I'll try to be balanced as much as I can about, about some of these things, even though uh, it's really hard <laughs> to be balanced about these things. Uh, and so I wanted to just throw ourselves for a couple minutes into the first half of the 19th century. So we're looking at uh, 1800 to 1850-ish uh, in Presbyterian history, in the United States, uh, particularly in New England, New York, and spreading out uh, towards the Old Northwest. This is a controversy, and if you know anything about church history, you know that controversies are very important because they become formative periods of time, right? We have our ancient creeds that come out of controversies. Doctrine is established and confirmed through controversies, and this controversy is no different than those kinds of controversies, uh, though not many people have heard of it. <laughs> so um, this is the old school, new school controversy about 100 years earlier in Presbyterian history. There was an old side, new side controversy. This is a different controversy that took place. Yet, the Presbyterian Church during this time, even a hundred years earlier, was facing some of the same kinds of concerns. A church in its infancy trying to figure out what it means to be Presbyterian. What's a good Presbyterian? What does a good Presbyterian church look like? So I'll ask you the question, what are some distinguishing features of Presbyterianism? Or in other words, how would you describe to your friend the Presbyterian church that you attend? What's a Presbyterian church? Church government's one of the, right? That's in its name, right? It's elder rule, right? So church government, church polity is, is part of the issue, part of the defining feature. What else? Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, right? The scriptures are central. That Reformation doctrine, like sola scriptura, everything that we do is going to be in conformity to scripture. That's the intent, right? So scripture, polity, church government. What else? Yeah. Yes, yes, our doctrinal standards. That's going to be another uh, important point of pre the Presbyterian church. Our theology. What about our worship? Is there something distinctive about Presbyterian worship as opposed to, you know, Catholic worship or Anglican worship or nowadays non-denominational kind of worship, evangelical worship? Yeah. Uh, singing from Congregational singing. Yeah, having the Psalms included, that's exactly right. Yeah. 
It just came out of the blue, right? It's an anomaly of history <laughs> that we would be the ones that would do that, yeah. So there's things that you know, we can think of as defining features of Presbyterianism, even just thinking about you know, our own churches here. Now, theologically, like you were saying, it's, we're confessional and it's decidedly Calvinistic, right? That's the stream of Reformed theology uh, that we swim in. So let me start by uh, offering some of the problems that were existing in the Presbyterian Church in the early 19th century. I'll talk about the, some of the problems, I'll talk about the split, and then I'll talk actually defining the old school and new school, and I probably won't get through like almost any of it, but I don't know what to do about that. So we're going to get as far as we can get. Um, problems in the Presbyterian Church in the 19th century. Um, by the turn of the 19th century, America is establishing itself as a new, young, and fragile nation. So how old is the United States by 1800? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a new nation, right? A very new nation. Um, trying to figure out what it is. And it's attempting to grow these 13 colonies um, into an entire nation. And we have populations that are moving in and moving out. Uh, so we have the Old West, the, the Northwest Territory, uh, as we call it, stretching from western New York uh, through to the Northwest Territory, which would be Ohio through um, Wisconsin. And there was this huge population boom uh, during this time. Uh, that old Northwest, that, that Northwest Territory, went from having a population of about 18,000 uh, to 218,000 in the course of 30 years. So that's a pretty large expanse of population and it turns out that only 5% of those people who are either immigrating from somewhere else to America and then going out west, uh, or those who are in New England and looking for, to spread out a little bit, uh, it turns out that only about 5% of those people were committed church members. So it's a fairly unchurched group of people who are going out uh, towards the west. Now the church should rightly see that what do you have there? If unconverted people. So it's, a, it's naturally a mission field, right? It's going to naturally be a mission field for the church to want to reach out to those particular populations that are unchurched with the gospel, right? That's, that's part of the Great Commission. So um, by the early 19th century, this mission field became a really big deal. Uh, for the Presbyterians. Um, and they established, and I'll talk about this in a minute, uh, something called the 1801 Plan of Union to work with other denominations, other churches, to do the work of missions in the Old Northwest. Um, so, there were some problems in the Presbyterian Church. There was a shortage of ministers. So we have this mission field, but we have a shortage of ministers, which is always the case in the Presbyterian Church for a lot of different reasons. Um, and there's no Presbyterian seminary to train ministers. No seminary, no real, no real uh, stream in order to get Presbyterian uh, ministers onto the mission field. Uh, in 1789, the Presbyterian Church had 419 congregations but they only had 111 ministers. Just think about that. So there's, you know, that, yeah, four churches for every minister. So that minister is doing a lot of traveling around, going to churches to ensure that, well, doing the work of the ministry, right? Uh, by 1803, that number of congregations grew to 511. And there was a seminary that eventually was established. That was in 1812. Princeton Seminary was established. But that was a little late in the game in order to catch up uh, with the number of Congregationalist ministers that could be out there on the mission field. Uh, so the Presbyterians saw the Congregationalists as a good ally for the missions. 
so that they could um, be supplied with ministers from the Congregationalist churches or work with Congregationalist ministers, with Presbyterian ministers, to establish churches, plant churches out there in the Old Northwest. Um, some of those institutions uh, nearby here even, so we have Harvard and Yale, uh, were institutions that were sending out Congregationalist ministers. There were some problems going on by the time of this particular era. Rationalism was creeping into theology. So the opinions of man coming in to define how the church should do the church and what the church should believe. Uh, there's Unitarianism, right? We're Trinitarian, Unitarian, one God. There's no Trinity, and Unit along with all kinds of other things that go into Unitarianism. Uh, began That Unitarianism began to assert itself in those kind of institutions. Uh, and then also this thing called Arminianism began to creep in to Congregationalist Church. There's actually, uh, what is it called? Andover Theological Seminary was founded in 18... I can't remember what it was. Um, to serve as a Congregationalist Seminary for those who were disenfranchised or didn't like the Unitarianism that was going on at Harvard and Yale. So all that to say, the Congregationalists had institutions in place in order to do missions, and the Presbyterians saw that as an opportunity to ride on their coattails in order to do the work of missions in the Old Northwest. There's another concern that's going on at this point, too. You have a new nation, and you have heathens out there in the western part of the country. So what are we going to do? we got to convert the heathens. Right? There's a big national uh, concern with missions. Right? What is our primary concern in missions? What, is our, what, do, what are we concerned about when we're saying we need to send more missionaries to the field? What do we want? Yeah? Um, to convert race, to convert like certain like races from not getting yeah, we want, to, we want all kinds of people to come to the knowledge of Jesus, right? To the saving knowledge of Jesus. That's the point, right? The salvation of sinners. That's the point of missions. That concern almost took a back seat to the national concern of maintaining a nation that had good morals, we need to keep the fabric of society together, and so the way to do that is to make Christians of this nation. You see how those roles are, re those, those priorities are reversed? So they come up with this plan of union, 1801. Uh, it's an agreement between the New England Congregationalist Churches and the Presbyterian Church in the United States. And so the purpose of it was to strengthen Presbyterian missions and um, prevent competition between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. So really, the church that was planted, they would get to choose. Do we want to be a Congregationalist or do we want to be a Presbyterian? Based on, you know, maybe the church was planted by a Presbyterian, but they want to be Congregationalists. So maybe they're a Congregationalist and they want to be, uh, they, it was planted by a Congregationalist, but they want to be Presbyterian. That could be the case. Uh, it didn't really go the way of the Presbyterians. <laughs> it usually went the way of the Congregationalists. Um, First article of that, uh, of that plan of union says, it is strictly enjoined, and just think about the language here, it's strictly enjoined on all their missionaries to new settlements to endeavor by all proper means, look at this, by all proper means to promote mutual forbearance and the spirit of accommodation between those inhabitants of the new settlements who hold to the Presbyterian and those who hold to the congregational form of church government. Congregationalists, Presbyterians, working together in missions. Now, thinking as good Presbyterians, like I know you all are, um, what kind of problems might arise uh, with Congregationalists who are tending towards Arminianism and Presbyterians who are historically confessional and Calvinist? What kind of issues might, might come up? What kind of concerns? What the Bible says about church government. There we go, right? Is it really just a matter of personal preference, what kind of church government we have? No, it's not. We wouldn't say that. We would say, no, the scriptures 
clearly show us a particular type of church government, right? What else? Uh, even just the message of assurance of salvation. Yeah. So, so the very gospel is at the heart of, of that plan of union, right? If, if our theology is Arminian over here, right? Our understanding of what the gospel is and what God is doing in, through, in and through Christ and what the ministry of the word is, that, that changes, right? Yet, we're going to continue to do missions even though we can't even decide what missions is, right? So um, this actually ends up marking some of the beginning of what we call the Second Great, great Awakening too. That, that's flowing into this particular uh, period as well. All right, Second Great Awakening, good or bad? <laughs> Generally, right, we, we, look with, we look with a lot of suspicion upon the Second Great Awakening, and usually, yeah, we say... Bad. First Great Awakening, we're like, mm, what is this thing? And Second Great Awakening, we're like, no, 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 we can't do it this way. Um, so by um, 1834, there were some wise Presbyterians who were saying, wait a second, hold on, there's some problems here, like that problem, right? Uh, what, is, what is the mission? What are we trying to accomplish? What doctrine? Doesn't that change the way that we do things? Um, so there was these old stodgy kind of Presbyterian guys. Uh, they're called the old school Presbyterians, right? They're not actually old stodgy Presbyterians. But, but they were called the old school Presbyterians, right? Because they're kind of trying to hold on to that old way of Presbyterianism. Um, so they, they said that there were, they outlined, I guess, kind of eight, it was a nice way of saying abnormalities, they called it. Eight abnormalities and errors that were present in the church thanks to the cooperative venture with the New England Congregationalists. Um, so the plan of union, as we already said, had compromised the polity, right, the church government of the church, and it already had compromised the theology of the church. Uh, the GA didn't really do anything about it. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church didn't do anything about the complaints that came up in 1834 or 1835 or 1836. It wasn't until 1837 that the GA said, okay, no, 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 we need to abrogate this plan. And they said that because old schoolers were in the majority. Um, so as uh, good Presbyterians, we do things very slowly uh, we're not allowed to make rash decisions, and so they needed to wait until the following year's GA, 19, 1838, in order to ratify that decision. So they voted, yes, let's abrogate the plan of union in 1837, but they needed to wait another year, another vote, in order to finalize that uh, dissolution of uh, working together with the Congregationalists. Um, both the old school and the new school knew that this would be a pretty contentious general assembly. This meeting would be very important. It's going to change the way that Presbyterians do missions. It's going to change that cooperation with the Congregationalists. Uh, so the old, the old school did something interesting. Uh, the old schoolers heard that the new schoolers were planning to prevent ratification. Of course, they would try to prevent ratification. And so the old schoolers arrived in Philadelphia where the GA was going to be held at Second Presbyterian Church. And all the old schoolers took the front seats so that they could control the proceedings. Okay? So they all sat up front, came early, and so um, all of the new schoolers, when they arrived on time, had to sit in the back. And they had a moderator for the General Assembly that was an old schooler. And, well, he went along with this bit of a shenanigan. And uh, the moderator responded to one of the presbyters uh, from western New York. He, he asked to have privileges and to be enrolled as a ministerial uh, member of the General Assembly. Right, The role has to be taken for who is part of this assembly. And the moderator said... 
we don't know you, sir. <laughs> and so that uh, led to that General Assembly falling apart quickly, and the new schoolers realized that they weren't going to be part of that General Assembly, and they established their own General Assembly in the back of the church. So you had two, in that moment, you had two Presbyterian churches claiming to be the Presbyterian church, uh, meeting at their respective general assemblies in the same building until the new schoolers moved down the street. And so old schoolers got their way. They abrogated the plan and essentially expelled the um, new schoolers from, that denom- from their denomination. So they said that uh, those presbyteries, those ministers in uh, the Northwest Territory were no longer part of the denomination. So that day that uh, the Presbyterian Church lost 509 ministers and 60,000 church members. That's double the size of the OPC that left or were essentially removed from the church. Now, let's think for a minute. Uh, I, I waited to define old school and new school uh, just to get a, get a little context of this um, controversy. Uh, let me go on to, to define what these groups are. So even from what we said earlier, um, you can see that the, the new schoolers have this nationalistic kind of outlook uh, that blended concern for society with the promotion of revivals, we can say. Um, new school Presbyterians, um, as part of the New England Presbyterian tradition, they saw that the health of America depended on its spiritual well-being. And in the practice of missions, that means producing a unified moral society that is a, that is a central tenet of new school understanding of missions and the church and theology and all those kinds of things. And so they essentially often favored all kinds of different organizations, all kinds of different means of doing missions. So uh, voluntary associations, tract and Bible societies, non-denominational missions agencies, organizations to promote moral reform, such as temperance. And this was a time when temperance was coming to be something, and the abolition of slavery, uh, which was still an institution practiced in the United States, particularly in the South. And through those things, to spread the benefits of Christian society to the society at large. Um, In in the 1830s, new schoolers initiated efforts to replace wine with grape juice for the Lord's Supper. So you might be wondering in your mind, where did the When in history did that switch from wine in the Lord's Supper become grape juice? And that was uh, here in the 1830s in this temperance movement. We need to remove all the alcohol. And uh, in 1840, the GA of the new schools, the new schoolers passed a rule requiring total abstinence from all alcoholic beverages that could lead to drunkenness. So what they're saying is, along with subscribing to the confessions of this church, you as ministerial members of this church also must abstain and commit to abstaining from alcohol in all measures. Any problems with that? David Booth, first hand up. (laughs) And I don't really commit. (laughs) Imposing on God's people something that God doesn't Right, so you're binding the conscience beyond what the scripture expressly commands, right? Old schoolers have a problem with that, right? Sola Scriptura! What? Yeah, Rachel. I'm just wondering, did the Congregationalists have something parallel going on where they were doing similar, like, were they doing those same things as well? I'm a Presbyterian, so I don't know. But all those, yes, all those things are going on with the Congregationalists, but they don't have... They don't have the structures that Presbyterianism has it. So it's locally based as opposed to, you know, going through the courts of the church. Any other questions? Um, New schoolers ended up modifying Calvinist theology by developing doctrines that would support both revivals and moral reform. So it took the jagged edges off those... 
uh, Calvinist doctrines, right? The depiction of human depravity, uh, loosening some of those ideas so that people would be more inclined to choose Christ and try to live holy lives if they thought they were bringing something to the table, right? Rather than having to wait for the divine initiative of the Holy Spirit to convert hearts, it'd be better if we could just convert our own hearts. Uh, this is the, again, this is the context of the Second Great Awakening in figures like Charles Finney. Anybody know who Finney is? Heard of Charles Finney? Did you know that Charles Finney was a Presbyterian? Who knew Charles Finney was a Presbyterian? Not a very good one. That's right, he was not a very good one, was he? So he, um, Finney, uh, so by the time Finney's coming up to be a minister, intending to be a minister, uh, his presbytery did encourage him to study at Princeton. He refused. He said anybody that goes to seminary, um, well, they might as well be in the cemetery because they're spiritually dead. Anybody going to seminary is essentially spiritually dead in, in his mind. So he needed, uh, he, he simply studied himself. He studied with his pastor and he secured licensure in the St. Lawrence Presbytery in New York. Um, there were no challenges from the presbyters about his theology. At his licensure exam in 1823, he was asked whether he subscribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And listen to this. He said, I had not examined it. This made no part of my study. And they licensed the guy. Because these are the new schoolers. And this is the old Northwest. And, and the mission field is, is, is calling us to go. And so we don't have time to stop and make sure that people are believing those things that we ourselves said that we would uphold. Okay, I'm not giving my opinion on these things. Um, so Finney, I'll just talk about Finney for a minute or two. Uh, Finney's theology was driven by the idea that man is spiritually free and self-governing. Uh, this is a position that marked uh, what is called the new divinity of New England. That's kind of that rationalism creeping in. Uh, to New England theology and that uh, Arminianism, Arminianism that's creeping in as well. And so that assumes that both moral and intellectual ability are unaffected by the fall. So I in myself can choose or not choose to believe and therefore choose or not choose to be born again. That's mine. I make the decisive act. Uh, so there for Finney and New England theology in general, more broadly, sin is a choice, not a condition. Uh, this understanding of moral freedom really shapes the rest of Finney's theology and his methods for ministry. Uh, let me just read this one quote from Finney. I think you'll appreciate it. He, Finney explains, revival is not a miracle. Any problems with that? Revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely philosophical. It's, it is a purely philosophical result of the right use of constituted means. So if you use the right means, you're going to get results. Right? As much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. That old way of of preaching to the minds, asking that the Lord would illuminate the heart, that the Lord would do His work of saving sinners. What do we need that for? We just use the right constituted means and we will get the results. And Finney, in a sense, got the results. Were those the real results or were those... Man's methods, yeah appealing to man's sinful sensibilities. Excitements, right? That's what he called for. He's looking to excite people. Uh, and so uh, for Finney, revival is mechanistic, and this really ends up being uh, part of the Second Great Awakening work of revival, is uh, this mechanistic understanding of, um, of revival of salvation. So Finney had this thing called the anxious meeting. I'll talk about his new measures for a second. 
new, uh, anxious meeting preacher would talk first to the individuals as they're walking in, and then he'd tailor his sermon to those individuals. <laughs> so you tell him something about yourself, and then he goes and he points his finger at you and essentially is calling you out. Maybe it's a good method. Hmm. Um, and those meetings were protracted meetings, right? A week or more. Ample opportunity for excitements. He instituted this thing called the anxious seat or the anxious bench, positioned in the front of the meeting for the preacher. And he'd, he'd call upon those who are seriously troubled, and they could come sit right here, and he would direct his preaching right at them. Right? This is the... David What? Is that what he does? <laughs> I did. I, it was the anxious seat, for sure. Uh, and so that's really the that's really the the inception of the altar call. Essentially, is is where that ends up going in history. Um, so that's that's a pretty different understanding of revival than say we would have, right? Yeah. Was the content of, this, of the gospel he preached effective as well? Yes, for sure. Um, it, it, it tended towards, essentially, moral, it, it tended towards a moralism bent uh, just simply because the ends, the aim of his preaching was s- simply moral reform. That's what we want. We want moral. And he has a defective understanding of sin, right? Sin isn't what corrupts. It's not, it's not simply guilt. It's not guilt and corruption, right? We talk about original sin as being guilt, the guilt of Adam, and corruption that flows out of our hearts. For Finney, it's not, well, you're born as a blank slate, right? You choose good, you choose evil. Um, and what's really the problem is those corrupting influences from outside that corrupt you, right? Did he preach the forgiveness of sins? In a, in a way, in a way, but he, he ended up denying in some sense uh, the substitutionary atonement. So he didn't, and there's some, there's some grayness to the way in which Finney started doing his doing his stuff. It was, I mean, his systematic theology is really just a philosophical treatise on morality, honestly. It's really interesting. It's available a lot. I was, you know, shocked when I was, oh, Jesus is just the wrong example. Yeah. Yeah, because, right, exactly. See, Adam is a bad example. Jesus is the good example. Follow Jesus and don't drink alcohol. And that's the proof, right? That's your assurance. My assurance that I am standing rightly before God is that I did not drink alcohol today. Or whatever other moral things are there. And, of course, I I say, I talk about Finney because, well, he's essentially a new schooler. And also because of the fact that uh, his theology was part of the emerging consensus among New England Congregationalists. And so he ended up actually leaving the Presbyterian Church a year before the split of the Presbyterian Church. Now, the only thing I have to point out is fundamentally morals are not static. So all the morals from then that we'd be looking at have gone so political. Now we say, what morals have I violated that I'm guilty of? So, so in, in part of that is the philosophical system of America at its founding, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? There's a certain philosophical underpinning that allows those words to be said, right? That's Scottish common sense realism. Right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. What, what's, what's part of the moral ambiguity of today? What's part of the problem? We don't hold these truths to be self-evident anymore. Right? Those, that philosophical underpinning doesn't hold us together like it did. Anything, any other comment about that? Okay, okay, I just, I didn't know, okay. All right, so uh, a couple minutes just to, uh, okay. I'm almost done, though. I'm almost done. Uh, let's just talk about the old school for a minute. Um, 
old school Presbyterianism from their actions, although their questionable actions at General Assembly in 1838, but from their actions, um, they were self-conscious about Calvinism, self-conscious conscious about uh, their reformed uh, doctrine in terms of upholding the Westminster Standards and all that was included in there. Um, and they were self-conscious about being Presbyterians in the sense of holding to Presbyterian polity, right? We're Presbyterians. We should probably act like Presbyterians uh, was their way. And so they ended up developing a high view of the church uh, that ended up distinguishing the ministry's purpose from those of national well-being. So the church's aims and goals and purpose are different from the aims and purpose and goals of society at large, from governments at large, right? There's two different, two different uh, spheres, we might say, as Abraham Kuyper might say, right? I mean, even Augustine picked up on this when he talked in his book, City of God, right? In the fourth century. You have the kingdom of man and you have the kingdom of God. There's overlap there, yet the kingdom of God is not synonymous with the kingdom of man, nor the kingdom of man synonymous with the kingdom of God. So, old schoolers developed that uh, high view of the church. Uh, in, in other words, that the task of the church was not to explicitly reform theology, or reform society. Now, Christianity, no, uh, no doubt, might benefit society, right? If society is full of Christians and they're, you know, acting according to the commandments of Christ, society's going to look different. But is that the goal? Is that the end for missions? The old scholars would say, no, it's not. What's most important is the salvation of souls, and whatever the other outcome comes from that, that is wonderful that the Lord is going to bless our nation in that particular way for this particular period of time. Uh, they uh, talked about this as being the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. Uh, Stuart Robinson, 1858, in his uh, book, The Church of God is an Essential Element of the Gospel, uh, says that the church and state are two great powers that be and are ordained of God to serve two distinct ends in the scheme, great scheme devised for man has fallen. The one is set up in the mercy and forbearance of the author of nature toward the apostate race at large to hold in check the outworking of that devilish nat nat nature consequent upon the apostasy and to furnish a platform, as it were, on which to carry on another and more amazing scheme of mercy towards a part of mankind. If anybody's a fan of Van Til, any Van Til fans here? So Van Til talks about this as being the, the, the realm of common grace. And that common grace functions as, like he, says, he calls it, the, the playground of differentiation. Right? This is the place, this is the context where, where evil is, is, is held at bay for the sake of God's mercy to be uh, shown to the nations. So that the fact that society exists is for the sake of the church to be able to do its thing. The order that exists, exists so that the church can continue to fulfill its mission, not the other way around. You see, the New Schoolers have it the other way around. Charles Hodge says... Um, 1861, the state has no authority in matters purely spiritual, and the church has no authority in matters purely secular or civil. That their provinces in some cases overlie each other is indeed true. Nevertheless, the two institutions are distinct, and their respective duties are different. Any thoughts on that? Concerns? Questions? All right, some notable old schoolers. You might know some of these names. Charles Hodge, Stuart Robinson, Robert Louis Dabney, Thomas Peck, Samuel Miller, among others. Uh, geographically, new schoolers were in New England, New York, the Northwest Territory, old schoolers 
uh, hung out in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and the South. Now, this is not quite, it's not quite uh, a golden age of Presbyterianism. It's not quite uh, the golden age, but it is a rare moment in American Presbyterian history when the desire to let the church just be the church and do the things that the church is called to do overrode competing distractions involving political and social involvement. The greatest challenge, of course, to this golden age of Presbyterianism would come in 1861. Anybody know what started in 1861? David? The Civil War. And so that would, uh, that would lead to a couple more splits in the Presbyterian Church and this short-lived kind of golden age uh, would in some ways come to an end. Just a, a, maybe a, a couple implications to think about. I know we're running out of time, but David said if I don't go past 12.15, I'll be okay. <laughs> or it was I might be okay. I can't. Regardless... <laughs> Um, just a couple of implications, warnings to take away from this congregation or this controversy. Um, a later generation of Presbyterians in a conflict that would come up hmm, about a hundred years later uh, would say, "Doctrine divides, mission unites." Think about that for a minute. Doctrine divides, mission unites. Anybody here, maybe not those exact words, but heard things similar to that? in your experience, right? I think this, I mean, this is just one example from history that, that just gives us a little bit, maybe, maybe offers us a little bit of correction uh, when we start hearing those things and offering us some historical, hmm, maybe that's not the direction that we want to go in. Uh, so, anyway, Doctrine Divide Mission Unites, is that true? Doctrine divide, mission unites. Do doctrines divide? They should divide, right? But how could you possibly have a cooperative mission if you can't even agree on the doctrines that define that particular mission? I think that's one of the important things to see in this particular controversy and to recognize in the world in which we find ourselves. Um, I think the other implication, perhaps, uh, for us to take away is uh, national interests versus the interests of Christ's church. Are they the same? Are they the same? Rarely. <laughs> Rarely. Right, are there overlapping things that exist? Yeah, there's overlapping things. But the church does its thing irrespective of the particular society it finds itself in, right? That's why the gospel is sent from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because what unites all the different nations and peoples and races and all that is the person and work of Jesus. And that message is unchanged regardless of the particular context in which it is preached. So which, which serves the other? Does the nation serve the interests of the church? Or does the church serve the interests of the nation? Or do they not kind of, how do they relate to each other? Because this is a, I mean, this is a big question. There's a lot of ink spilled about these kinds of questions, and particularly in our particular moment, I hope we can see that there's, there's things here that perhaps uh, we need to think more carefully about as Christians and how we engage uh, in this particular world and the way in which we see uh, the mission of the church. Any last-minute questions? Yeah. Last minute, I was under the impression we were going to have the opportunity to ask questions. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You have questions. You have questions. I'll ask two, but feel free to give a very brief answer. Yeah. Because I know other people have questions. I want to know 
uh, pastor's books, and I don't mean just give me a litany of the top, the things that you'd expect an audience like this to want to say thumbs up to. I want to know who affected you personally. Yeah. these questions since you were asked them, but this is actually not the forum to ask those questions. The questions were about his Sunday school class. If you to come back again, you will have the entire Sunday school period to ask him questions like this. But since you were asked these questions, go ahead and give it a shot. <laughs> so, okay, so first, how did I come uh, to know Jesus? Uh, I, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, heard the gospel as a kid. It was in Arminian church, but nonetheless, I heard the gospel, and at a young age, I believed. I, I don't necessarily know that I ever didn't believe, but I remember sitting in church, and my mom, you know, they're doing the altar call, and my mom kind of nudging me, like, don't you want to go up there? And I didn't want to, because I didn't want to <laughs> be in front of anybody. But I think, yeah, I, I think I don't really know, but of course, in the Christian life, those truths about Christ and the reality of the gospel sink in at different points as the Lord uh, reveals himself more and more and what the significance is of what he has done. So that's just been through covenant nurture, I guess, is, is, is the way. Yeah. Oh, wait, sorry. I have to answer two more parts. I apologize. Uh, how did my wife and I come to meet each other? Uh, we met each other uh, at youth group as kids. We were in middle school. Well, she was in middle school. I was in high school. Um, and that's kind of it. Uh, I think uh, I had to ask her dad if I could date her because she, she was 16. And uh, when we were, we were driving to church after he said, uh, I guess so, um, <laughs> we were driving to church and, and I said to her, I said, I hope you know I'm in this for the long haul. Like, this isn't a joke. And so that was kind of just, that was it. That's not to say that there weren't ups and downs and all kinds of things, but that's, that's kind of it. Uh, books that were influential to me or authors. So when I was uh, first in college, um, well, I'll, I'll start back. So, so I didn't read books as a kid. Like, even like in high school, I didn't read the books that I was supposed to read. Don't, children, don't take this as an excuse to not do your score. That just wasn't my thing. I wasn't academically interested in things. Uh, but I had a youth pastor who gave me uh, a John Piper book. It was Don't Waste Your Life. And I read that and I ate it up and I said, this is great. Uh, and so as a college student, I went to community college my first year trying to save some money. Um, and I'd go up in the library to the third floor of this community college where nobody was because it was really just literary kinds of books. It wasn't books on biology and science and all kinds of things. I'd go up there and I, I, I took C.S. Lewis's, um, what's that book called? A Grief Observed. Right? That's Lewis. There's some things in there that are, tr tr right? But that was the first time I saw someone who said, I'm a Christian struggling so hard with the reality of death. Yeah. And so I looked at it and I said, maybe this idea of Christians being, you know, happy-go-lucky all the time, maybe that's not actually true. And maybe the reality is something different. And so that really set me on a trajectory uh, to, you know, what is the Christian life? And I think... Reading Calvin in, in, high, in college was something that was extremely formative and set me kind of on, on this particular path. Question? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, go ahead. I can't remember what his dates are. Anybody know? Yeah. Too early. Too early. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good question that I didn't have an answer for. <laughs> Any other 
We've got to wrap this thing up. One last final question. Anybody? Anybody? How is Lutheranism different from Presbyterianism? Good. Whoa. Whoa. There are. Now I'm sweating. No, um, there's a lot of distinguishing features of Lutheranism and Reformed theology. I, I would say that Lutheranism, uh, generally, as we think about the Reformation, kind of stuck on uh, justification, became the central feature of Lutheran theology. Uh, whereas, so the Reformed, in our confessions, we talk about this thing called union with Christ. So we're united to Jesus, and in him we receive all the benefits of salvation, so justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits do either flow or flow from those. Um, anyway, all that to say, uh, for Lutheran theology, justification is the centerpiece, and everything flows from it. In Reformed theology, union with Jesus by spirit-wrought faith is the central feature which everything flows from. And so in Lutheran theology, sanctification is underneath, it's an appendage to justification. So that when you talk about, you know, you might have somebody say to you, um, you know, what is sanctification? And they might respond by saying, well, sanctification is just getting used to your justification. But that's not true. Because Jesus purchased for us our sanctification. And it's a blessing of his person and work that he gives to us actual in-time obedience and love for God. Also, another distinguishing feature is the Lord's Supper. That's different. Sacraments are different. And there's other ones as well. But... I know that's a huff, that's a tough one. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right.